coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota, a conversation about the great and sometimes not so great outdoors. I'm your host, Jody Gruen, and we do this for fun. Hi, it's Jody, and I'm here at my favorite place, the Trailhead at Three Worth Park. Um, we Do This for Fun is a podcast that shares the stories of the many ways that people um, experience the outdoors and DIY tips and tricks to get out there. And what better way to do that than to hand the mic over to the fun experts? Today, we're doing just that. We hand the mic over to none other than delightful Devin Brown. <clears throat> you heard Devin back in March of 2023 on this podcast, and as late, you've probably seen her on the cover of Women's Press or viewed one of her countless interviews. I'm certain that Devin's spark and snark will make this one epic. We do this for fun. Thank you, Jody. Thank you so much for inviting me back and having so much faith <laughs> so much that faith. I can navigate so this river of a podcast right now. Ooh, metaphors. Ooh, I'm good for them. <laughs> um, so Jody asked me to interview someone, and I chose Mr. Scott Miller. Now, if you don't know Scott Miller, Scott Miller is currently one of the men that holds the Mississippi speed record. Mississippi River speed record. Scott, how how quickly did you complete the river recently? We paddled the whole 2,300 miles of the Mississippi just this past May in 16 days, 20 hours, and 16 minutes. That's incredible. How many miles was that again? About over 2,300. Yeah. 2,300 miles in less than 17 days. Yeah. That's amazing. So I wanted to talk to Scott about that experience, his training to get ready for that experience, and what he learned about the world, and maybe, if he wants to get a little bit juicy, what he learned about himself, but no pressure. Whoa. No pressure. He's going deep, Scott. (laughs) What did I sign up for? So... My first question for you is, what is your first memory with water? Mm-hmm. We're starting off with a bang here. My first memory with water was probably a bathtub, but let me think about this. Uh, I don't even, that's conjecture. You know, I don't have a very good memory. I mean, actually, uh, my dad worked for the Three Rivers Park District, which is the, the Hennepin County Park District here in, in the Twin Cities. And he took us paddling on the Minnehaha Creek when I was a kid as part of a work outing with his colleagues. And the Minnehaha Creek flows from Lake Minnetonka 21 or 22 miles to the Mississippi. And it, the water levels are good for paddling vanishingly rarely. But when they are right, it is awesome. It's, it's the best, probably the best paddle bar none, anything I've ever done. And I've paddled 10,000 miles because in those 22 miles, it's like you're on a Disney flume ride. There are rapids. There are rich people's backyards in Edina. There's, there's a Dairy Queen. There's a Taco Bell. There's forests. There's golf, there's golf courses. There's lakes. There's tunnels. 
One of the tunnels you paddle into and it's pitch black. You can't see anything because it's got a kink in it. So, I mean, it really is. It's like you're at Walt Disney World for four hours. I mean, it is unbelievably awesome. So that's, that's what got me hooked. Noted. Add it to the list. Oh, when the water levels are right. A few years ago, the water levels were right at peak fall color. And that was mind that's un That's unheard of. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I will take you. I will take anybody. Date. When the water levels <laughs> yes, are right. Because it absolutely. is so fun. That sounds so fun. Yeah. How, how do you know when the water levels are right? This is coming from a person who doesn't have experience. I mean. This is a great question. This is a great question. Due to the miracle of modern technology, all you have to do is go to the Minnehaha Watershed so, District's okay. website and look, they have a, a guide, and there's now a gauge at Minnehaha Falls and at Grays Bay Dam, so at the beginning and the end of the route. And they say, I haven't looked lately, but generally speaking, they say you want it between 75 and 150 cubic feet per second. That's the amount of water they're releasing from the dam at, at Lake Minnetonka oh, okay. or, or at the gauge at Minnehaha Falls, either one. But in my experience, 75 is a little on the low side. Unless you have a low drafting kayak, you're going to scrape a lot. But anything above 150, like I love 200, but you better know what you're doing because there's rapids and there's low bridges and you could, you could be injured. So it's actually not the greatest route for total beginners because there's rapids. But... Uh, it's, it's really fun. Which you would think, given that it's in the middle of the city, it just seems like, oh, this would be an easy place for me to just, you know, put in right here and just... Right. No. No, and I mean, you're probably going to be fine, even if you don't know what you're doing. But if you have kids and, like, you should wear your life jacket and, you know, you, you just always... You got to assess your level of risk in any paddling activity. Anyone. Yep. You know, you got to figure out what makes sense for you. And you, you can't just be totally thinking, oh, for sure, I'll be fine. Anytime you're paddling. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that was, that was epic first memory with like your dad paddling. We actually, okay, he took me. I think it was just one time. Me and my brother were like eight and 10 or something. I don't know. In his fiberglass canoe on the Minnehaha Creek, we get stuck in a rapid crossways on a rock because there was a bunch of people in front of us clogging up the creek and the canoe snapped in half. And me and my brother went floating in the creek and our cooler <laughs> and our lunch, for real. And my dad freaked out, but we were fine. He got us out of the creek and it didn't leave any scars. We, we thought it was fun, you know, but that's an example of like, you, I mean, things happen. That's amazing. Yeah. The boat snapped in half, and then your two children are just floating down this creek. We were wearing our life jackets. Oh. In half that a canoe. Part. <laughs> right. We were wearing our life jackets. Absolutely. So that experience, is that safe to say that it shaped your willingness or your excitement for paddling throughout your life? It's one of the key things. Yeah. One of them. Not the only one, but yeah, for sure one. Yeah. It's so important to get kids out on the water before they can mitigate risk. <laughs> right. Like adults do. Right. Yeah. Yes. Super duper important. So back to this world record setting. Yeah. Was that your first attempt at it? No. What did you learn from your first attempt? And tell, tell us what happened with your first attempt so that you could apply that to your second attempt, your successful attempt. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it is an epic adventure. I mean, 2,300 miles, paddling 24-7, rapids, huge barges, locks and dams, wing dams, whirlpools, rain, lightning. It's genuinely dangerous. Uh, and we did, and I did it twice. So the first time was in 2021. And <clears throat> I mean, there's a million stories, but the, the culmination of that was we had paddled over 2000 miles. We were halfway between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. When we got to Louisiana, we had a seven hour lead over world record pace. But then that lead eroded down to nothing because we had 30 mile an hour headwinds for days and inches of rain because there was a tropical depression or something like that in the Gulf, which is not supposed to happen in May, but with climate change, everything's unpredictable always. So our, our lead dropped from seven hours to six to five down to zero. And my teammates were like, no more sleeping. I mean, we, we were so sleep deprived. They're like, no, no one gets a break. It's all hands on deck. And I was like, this is crazy. We still have another 30 hours of paddling and the conditions are horrible. I kind of could see the writing on the wall, but I also wasn't, I sure as heck wasn't gonna be the one to say like, well, I quit. I mean, no way was I gonna do that. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's like almost midnight and the conditions are the worst of the whole trip. And at one point, 24 hours earlier, I had taken the support crew leader, who's my wife's uncle, and I'm not this kind of person, but I, he was pushing me on the shore like, you guys gotta really, get going here. And I grabbed him by his shirt and I said, just make sure they're ready to rescue us when we go down. Cause we're going down. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, 24 hours later, the, the waves are coming into the canoe and the, the canoe's filling up with water. And we're in a part of the river that's filled with barges and ocean going vessels, four foot waves, both shores. It's almost midnight are just filled with lights from industrial complexes, chemical plants, oil refineries. And these ships out there are stressed as it is because it's bad conditions for them, these massive ships, much less our tiny little canoe. So we call the safety boat over, we grab hold, it's riding up on the waves and it's listing ominously over our heads and then crashing down between the waves and threatening to rip our arms off. And we're arguing amongst ourselves, the four of us in the canoe, if we don't get away from this boat, it's gonna kill us. But if we go away from this boat, we're probably not gonna do very well. So we're fighting and then the canoe literally sinks out from under us and at the last second we jump on board the safety boat. And the canoe is, we can't recover it, it's gone. It's lost in the tempest. And then this little 25 foot trailerable houseboat, motorboat that we're on, now has seven people on it instead of three and it's overloaded. And the captain who's running that ship had captain ships all over the world for his whole career. So thank God he knew what he was doing. The nearest ramp was 10 miles away. We couldn't get there. He ditched out on a little piece of sand next to an alligator filled swamp. And we spent the night with the waves crashing into the boat and finally made it back to shore the next day. And the canoe was, was gone. <laughs> this is like the oh. epic bedtime story. Oh my goodness. I'm so like into this. My eyes are filled with tears. Seven like I'm like holding on to my at each seat. Other, like, like that's crazy. Have you written a book yet? I'm, I'm working on it. All right. And then you did it again. I started thinking about doing it again within 24 hours. I love that. I love that. 
And you were so close to finishing. We were 100, less than 150 miles from the end. Oh. But here's the crazy thing. Like, I just loved the whole experience of it. I loved all the planning. I loved all the training. You know, I haven't been canoeing for a couple months now. But when I had this big, huge goal, then I had to train. So I had to get out on the river all the time, multiple times a week. And I missed that. But I'm not as motivated now because I don't have this big goal motivating me. And, I, and so it had been a three-year project. It was a ton of work, but I was like, it was pretty fun. Yeah. That's one of my fears about finishing the river. Like, I've worked towards this for a whole entire decade. And then I'm like, what? what's my purpose? What's my goal after, after that? It's so, been 10 years of my life. So Ooh. I just heard about this book. And I got it on an audio book, and it's called Will to Wild. I sent it to you. You did send it to me. It's on my list. Because this is this woman that studied people who do big adventures, outdoor adventures, big and small, mm-hmm. in the outdoors. And then the thesis of the book is all about why do we do outdoor adventures, what is good about them. And she's studied, like, and she has stories from dozens of people. It's really cool. And uh, Shelby Stanger is her name. And she... She says that people get depressed. And she said, you really want to have your next adventure lined up before this one finishes. Even if it's just a little thing. Even if it's just a little thing. So you have something to look forward to. So Because like, this was a five-year project for me, this world record attempt. And I have been in the depression doghouse on and off for a few months. And I'm coming out of it and I'm writing my book. And I have, I have the races that I organize on the river to look forward to. So I'm figuring it out. But it was just nice to know that, oh, this is normal. You know? And I appreciated that when you sent that to me, because I was actually talking to Jody before about how after me not finishing one of your river races, yeah. I've been dealing with like pockets of depression from not finishing. And like I know that I made the right call. I had no more dry clothes and I was done. Um, but yeah, just the incompletion right. gave me depression. So I can only imagine the black dog that finishing it will. So that is a great tip to schedule my next adventure right. as I hit my head against a wall. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or your next project or, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever it is, yeah. or even just a trip to the beach. So it's something to look forward yeah. to. Something to look forward yeah. to. Yeah. I've been talking about this boathouse at the 42nd Ave launch to clean up and activate that space. Yeah. And that's what I've been talking to, to several organizations, mm. putting that out there. Where, oh, 42nd? 42nd, so Blue Bridge as you're, yeah, on the river in North. Cool. You don't even know the launch because it's so crowded and dirty and, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so we've been talking about that. Okay, well, that was, that was amazing. I don't know how to follow up with that story, <laughs> <laughs> honestly. And, like... Let's uh, break up the seriousness a little bit. Tell, so you are in a boat for 24 hours, nonstop, with the exception of portages, with three other grown men. Like, tell me, what is that like? I mean, the thing I have to say is that what captivated me when I first heard about this record, because I only heard about it in 2018, I'd, I'd never heard... I'd never heard of it. It never occurred to me that there was such a thing as the Guinness World Record for paddling the Mississippi. And I don't really consider myself like a high-end athlete. 
but I like working out and I liked canoeing. And I generally didn't think of canoeing prior to this as a particularly athletic thing for me, right? Because I would go to the Boundary Waters or paddle on a river, but it was like a leisure time activity. Yes, it was active, but it was like going for a walk, not going for a run, right? So active, but not like working out. But I was like, well, let's see if I can marry these things, you know, and let's see how athletic I can be. And what I thought was, if you do something that's long enough, right, 2,300 miles, then like, I'm not gonna win a five mile race. I'm not gonna win a 10 mile race. Like I just don't have the fast twitch muscle mass, you know, right. but, if, but once you go long enough, it becomes less about sheer athletic ability and more about teamwork and strategy and the mental game, all of that, you know, and at least I thought that that might be true. And I've read stuff about how the longer you go, actually it's true too that like in a lot of these long, trail running races, women perform as good or better as men, right? Because it's, because even though on average men have more muscle mass, that becomes much less important the longer you go, right? And like when Anne Bancroft went to the Arctic with Will Steger, they all still say she was the best equipped for the Arctic because she had, women naturally have a little more fat on their body mm -hmm. and so, and it's freezing cold. So she was better adapted. She, 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 she felt better. She was stronger. She could eat better her stomach handled it like all those things she was best adapted so and what they were doing was super long an endurance thing so anyways your what was your question for in the canoe yeah i mean that's part of it right is like the guys that set the record in 2003 one of them warned us he's like having four guys might seem like an advantage but i think it's a disadvantage because you've got twice as many people for something to go wrong personality wise or someone gets sick or injured and I was like, well, that's my ace in the hole, is I think I can put together a team that is thoughtful enough towards each other and has some emotional intelligence and has some good teamwork skills where not, not everybody can do that and that we can gain an advantage that way. Absolutely. I kayak, so I can do it alone. No. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an amazing point that you selected these personalities and you yes selected these personalities or a group of you guys talked about who you think would mesh together well so that you could get through it together right and i like i just knew it wasn't going to work for me to have a real type a hyper competitive kind of guy in the boat with me a real macho kind of guy it just doesn't mesh with my personality and I'm not a strong enough leader to stand up to somebody who's going to take over and dominate. So I needed guys who could work with who I am and what my leadership style is, you know. I love that. Yeah. So How do you find those people? I mean, it's interesting. Like, I was obsessed with this project. Like, totally obsessed. I would have spent all day every day working on this project if I could. And I mostly did, right? And... So when you have that kind of energy motivating you, um, in retrospect, I, th I was kind of looking for anybody who would do it with me, who had that fire. Mm. Because there's dreamers in the world that it sounds appealing to, but brass tacks, like, are you gonna be able to commit hundreds of hours to training? Are you gonna, are you gonna strategize with me for hours on end? Are you gonna go to Memphis and St. Louis and Northern Minnesota and train with, on the river with me? And I went through many different teammates oh you did that were only around some of them for a few weeks or a few months and like 
One time we got a guy from Texas who I was desperate. We were going on a training trip and there was only three of us. And it's like the whole thing here is to have four. And I put out on the paddling internet, you know, hey, we're looking for somebody. And this guy was an ultra distance paddler from Texas. Okay, great. And in my desperation, I think I maybe overpromised a little bit. I made it sound like you, you'll probably become part of the team. Like come help us on this training trip. And then, and then he wasn't a good fit. And he was, and it, and I didn't let him know for a few weeks because I was thinking about it. Because I, it's like, well, we don't really have anybody else, but he's not the right fit. And I had to tell him eventually, and he was upset. And I was like, you know what? You should be upset. I screwed up. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm genuinely sorry here. Because when you have that obsessive zeal about something, it's sometimes you lose sight of, you know, being kind to people. So mostly, <laughs> I'm a pretty kind person. Mostly that didn't happen, but it was like a wake-up call for me. Like, okay, I got to be careful here. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's not being kind. Well, or as thoughtful as you could be. Right. I yeah. mean, I think that's discernment. Right. I think that a lot of the times we lack a lot of discernment in things and try and give people a chance, even though our intuition says it's not a good fit. And I think that's yeah. amazing that you actually stood on that and said... You know, it's, it's not a match. Well, right. and that you had that goal and knew, right. like, right. I'm not going to achieve this goal unless I have the right team. Right. And, and this actually happened many times, not just with potential teammates, but support crew members, too. And my wife's uncle volunteered to be our support crew leader and played this unbelievably crucial role for five years. And at times, we had to let people, volunteers, kind-hearted mm-hmm. people who are volunteering their time, and we had to say, this isn't going to work. It was really hard. But those are great lessons to learn. Like, my natural inclination is like, oh, we can make it work. We can make it work. But what you eventually realize is just because that might be what the one person wants, if it's negatively affecting the whole group, it's hard. Those are hard. It's hard, hard decisions. <laughs> Very hard decisions. Yeah. Very hard decisions. But I still haven't answered your question about four guys in a boat. I mean... <laughs> Which was what? What, what? Just what was that like, right? <laughs> was I supposed to remember that? I'm like taking all of this in for my own for my own needs. No. Um, yeah. What was it like for for men in a boat? I mean, I think I realized that I am extroverted in certain ways, and uh, so it was fun. Like, I got to be hanging out with some fun guys 24/7 for 17 days. I kind of like that. For a lot of people, that sounds like a nightmare. but you know we ended up right we ended up you know singing weird songs and making dumb jokes and laughing our tails off and you know and kind of picking each other up whenever anybody would would have a hard time and I think I think I picked the right guys for this after five years and multiple attempts and things this was a really good these guys were not only really good athletically but they were good uh socially too yeah yeah. So I said that I wouldn't talk about this too much and we can go away. But if you're in a boat for 24 hours nonstop, except for deportage, what's what's that like to have to take care of your natural, your natural bodily Everybody functions? always wants to know how we went to the bathroom. <laughs> it's like the first question everywhere. And so it's, note, it wasn't my first curious. question. Yeah. It's fair. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, uh, you know, like, let's be honest, right? Like, guys are used to peeing anywhere and everywhere all the time. It's a, it's a, it's an unfair privilege or whatever the heck that is. And they have figured out more and more devices and ways in the outdoors 
for women to help mm-hmm. women, right? Because I own them yeah. all and I've tried none show. of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like what are the, the goal girl or right. And yeah. she go, I mean, the there's she, all these, we and all of these yeah. things. Right. So, yeah. They all sit in their packaging. Right. It's ready, easier ready to go. Spot. I pack them and I never use them. Yeah. And it's like a real issue because I've known women who like, I, if I'm going on a five hour hike, I'm not even thinking about going to the bathroom. I don't care. And it's an issue. Cause they're like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to drink as much water. Cause I don't, it's like, well, oh my God, let's stop and think about this. How do we make this really work for you? So it's, impo- it's like an important thing. So anyway, so the peeing part, not to get too graphic, but we had sawed off milk cartons and they were our bailers if water got in the canoe and we used them for other things too, you know, like peeing. Multifunctional, I like Multifunctional, that. Multifunctional, <laughs> yeah. But then this is another place of the strategy where it was like, Okay, there's four of us. We're eating massive amounts of calories. If we can figure out how to go number two in the canoe, instead of having to pull over every time, we will save massive amounts of time. And so we figured that out. And on this trip, unlike the first trip, we figured it out even way better. Like everything was better on the second trip because of what we learned on the first trip. So one of the guys got a whole bunch of WAG bags donated. These are bags made for desert environments where people go hiking for a week and they have to pack out their own uh, excrement excrement because if you leave it in the desert, it'll sit there forever. So not wanting to pollute the Mississippi River, we have these wag bags which have a chemical that makes it so it doesn't smell. And it just and we actually had, in the middle part of the canoe, we had the seats had a piece you could knock out and there was a hole. So it was like a little, you could make, you could pop this hole out of this wooden seat and then you could slip the wag bag underneath open it up, do your business. And the great thing is, is even though it's only a 23 foot canoe and we're literally sitting just feet from each other, we actually had it with the canoe cover and and the bulkheads, you could actually have privacy, which is important, right? So it was actually everybody, I think, on this second attempt, way preferred going in the canoe because we would go on shore, but on shore it's like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, which is not how you wanna be when you're going to the bathroom. (laughs) Not conducive for that situation <laughs> no, no. at all. But in the canoe, you could you could throw the... We, we said if you put the canoe cover over your back and you became Little Green Riding Hood and you could just take your sweet time. And and then we would get... And then our support crew was so devoted to us, they would take these disgusting wag bags from us onto the support boat and eventually to the appropriate mm-hmm. trash can. And uh, there you go. That's the answer. Sounds like the support crew is um, our angels. For sure. That is love. That is absolute sure. love. Yeah. That's like a mother to a child. Absolutely. Yeah. One, one time early on when Moose, that's my wife's uncle, was volunteering to be our support crew on a, on a training trip, one of the times I went butt first into the canoe, into the middle of the canoe where I was going to be on my break time, and I had these big muck, muddy muck, muck boots on, which I don't want to get in the canoe because then the sleeping area is going to be filled with mud and water. And I can't get them off. And so my feet are sticking out over the gunnels, over the side of the canoe. And it's like nighttime. And he took my boots off for me. Hmm. Which is, and it's like, okay, wow. Like, all right, Moose, you're amazing. You know, (laughs) it was just sweet. It was a sweet thing. Super sweet and supportive. Like those little moments, I bet, really make a huge difference in a situation like that. Yeah. And they and that's the support crew all bought into the goal. So they they were having an adventure every bit as much as we were, and they were invested in it. It was it was fun. That's amazing. All 
right, so we got bathroom out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I can go home now. No, I'm kidding. It's interesting because as I've done the your races, the Mississippi River 50 or 48 last year, and then attempted at the 150, I always try and convince myself to like pee in the boat. I really like I put down I'm telling way too much right now but like I put down like a wee wee pad on this my is seat the, this is the real discussion uh-huh. yeah this no absolutely the... I put down the wee wee pad mm-hmm. on the seat and it also helps to keep the seat dry with the splash splashing but like I cannot convince myself to, to relax please. enough to do it I cannot relax enough to that, do it and that is actually an issue for guys too and it was an issue for me because in some of the seats, like, yeah, it, the, the positioning of your body, right. right? You have to get positioned right and then you have to be able to relax and right. it's, it's not easy. But if you keep trying and you train at it, you will get there. And the other thing is I did this 340 mile race in Missouri that like 800 people do this race. It's called the MR340, including many, many women. And on the Facebook forum for that race, they have, if you search and urine on there there'll be dozens and dozens like of posts from women all sharing what they do how they do it and some of the the people in that race are like they do pee in the boat and there's all kinds of things my teammate judd told me that in hardcore canoe races i don't know if i don't think the women do this but the guys they will angle their canoe paddle and pee the skilled ones seriously will pee onto the canoe paddle and then it drains oh. off the paddle over the side of the boat so they don't even have to you know, destabilize the boat. That's some talent in practice. That's hardcore. Uh-huh. I know. That's hard. I, know. I mean, I watch some of the people do portages. Like, that's always my weak point in the races or in the mm. last one. And they're just beautiful. And I'm like, you guys practice. Yeah. I'm a try it and fail and learn from the failure than a practice kind of person. Yeah. Maybe I need to change that for getting rid of note it. I need to change that, getting ready for Could I ask a question about portaging? Because I thought the Mississippi was just one long body of water. Right. It's not. Humans have significantly altered the entire waterway, just like they have the vast majority of waterways, by building dams. Yes. So there's actually 14 dams, roughly, between Itasca State Park at the headwaters in northern Minnesota and the Twin Cities, all of which you have to portage. Oh, Starting do. in the Twin Cities, that's there's just the Twin Cities. Like yeah. that's just Minnesota. Right, and then then there's 29 locks and dams between the Twin Cities and St. Louis, and you you generally go through the locks on those instead of portaging. But yeah. Huh. All right. Good to know. That's why the support crew is so handy. But on the during the Mississippi speed record, you guys could only carry your boat. Right. We we were the only ones that could. Per Guinness's rules, we had to propel the boat forward. Every no one else could propel the boat, but they could take our gear. Okay. So you didn't have to carry everything. No, but okay. we mostly just left everything in the canoe, and we could put it on portage wheels. So that's the thing. Like when you did the 150 mile race, uh, did you use portage wheels? I had portage wheels, but again, I did not practice. Right. So like I did practice tying it up, but not actually moving, dra- moving it yeah. through. Yeah, which is tricky. So, yeah. Yeah. So when you have portage wheels, then, then you can leave a lot more stuff in your boat because the weight of, the weight of everything is on the portage wheels instead mm-hmm. of on you. Right. But that's kind of a quirky thing. Like when you're in the, like in the boundary waters, nobody uses portage, portage wheels. wheels. Everybody puts the boat on their shoulders. 
And that's also the benefit of having a canoe versus a kayak because with my kayak, it's on one shoulder for the most part. Right. Um, Like a messenger bag versus having a yoke that can just go over your head and make it more ergonomic to carry. Right. For sure. Absolutely. I love it. Can you tell me about the boat? So on your first attempt, that boat was unrecoverable? Well... It actually ended up getting recovered by a crazy Cajun guy. I don't know if he's actually Cajun, but I like saying that he's Cajun. He, his name is Joey Cargo, and he actually, he's a captain of the big ships down there on the Mississippi. But he also paddled the whole river himself in a homemade wooden canoe. So now he is like a liaison between the paddling community and the barge community, which often have been at odds, but he can speak both languages, so it's amazing. And he rescued our canoe for us. It was like 30 miles from where we'd lost it. It was wrapped around a chemical dock. It's a whole story, actually. He took, he took my friend Todd and I out on a boat that he commandeered because he just knows everybody down there, and he can make anything happen. And, he, and we were going to rescue our boat that was wrapped around a chemical dock pylon like two days after we had ended our trip. It had, it had, it had continued down the river, and we, we stopped at a crawfish boil, and then we went and we, we, we wrenched the canoe off. He wrenched the canoe off, but couldn't quite pull it onto the boat. And we lost it and we couldn't recover it. And then like two days later, he heard about where it was. And he went and he swam into the Mississippi River and pulled the boat out. And then somebody on my support crew, who was still down there, drove it all the way back up to Minnesota for me. And I was so happy. But then really it was dumb because it was so destroyed that it was basically unrecoverable anyway. And it was just dumb. So is it hanging up somewhere, or did you recycle it? Neither. I sold it to somebody for like fifty dollars, and I. Feel Someone bad. purchased it. Some some crazy person thought they could rehab it. But that would be like an art piece. That would I be know. like an art piece. Like Seriously, yeah. right? I know, but like I don't have those skills. So it's just a collector <laughs> hanging just from the rafts. Put it there. Right. Just, yep, there it is. I don't know where. I don't. Then know. you can tell the story with it in the background and I know. make it even more dramatic, Scott. I know. I know. I know. So who knows where it is now? Huh. But it's hopefully it's still around. Hopefully. Holding that memory. Yeah. So your boat for the successful trip, what is named the Dingus? Am I saying that correctly? Uh, the first boat was called, had many names. Uh, so the, this, yeah, the, the, what was it? The, uh, I don't even remember now. The, wow. The first, this boat was called the Mighty Duffus. Named after Duffus. the guy, okay. this guy, Scott Duffus, was on our support crew, and he spent like 200 hours modifying the canoe to make it perfect for us. He put in an electrical system that powered our navigation lights and our navigation tablet and our bilge pumps, and the battery on it just had to be switched out every 24 hours. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. Uh, so that's why we named it after him. But both canoes were Winona, Minnesota 4 canoes. Winona Canoe Company makes their canoes in Winona, Minnesota on the Mississippi River. They're like this storied canoe company. And, you know, more Winona canoes are paddled in the Boundary Waters than any other kind of canoe. And the most popular model for paddling in the Boundary Waters is the Minnesota 2. We had a Minnesota 4, which is basically a Minnesota 2 elongated for four people. And it was, we think it was, it was a great boat for us. It was stable enough that we could sleep in it even up to two people at a time could sleep in it stable and big enough but it was also fast so it was a good combination that's awesome i saw that you guys were at the state fair 
yeah. showing showing it off. Yeah, a lot of people are really interested in the canoe, and it, it's, it is pretty cool. It has these bulkheads in it to section off the sleeping quarters, and then it has these Lexan ribs that bow from gunnel to gunnel that the cover goes over, so it's like a little tent canopy over the sleeping area, and then it has all these zippers. So you can convert seats two and three can be converted in a matter of minutes to be for paddling or sleeping under the cover. Yeah. That's my kind of canoe. Seriously, mm-hmm. electrical system, bilge pump. Did you yeah. like rig it out like that, or did somebody else do that for you? Scott Duffus did okay. it all, but we kept testing it, and we learned a ton from the first attempt. So over the years, the five years of this project, because really the 2021 attempt was the first attempt, but we were supposed to have gone in 2020. We were all set to go in 2020. We trained for two years. But then the coronavirus came with the stay-at-home mm. lockdown orders. So we went on probably 14 training trips over five years with I have different teammates. And we just kept learning and learning and learning. So the boat, I had at least three different people spend tons of time making modifications. And we kept refining and refining and refining and refining. I didn't do anything. I just reported back to them, this worked, this didn't. Can we try this? And the best of, of everybody was Scott Duffus. Because... Uh, he just was like a magician. I mean, he, everything, everything we could dream for, like maybe if the canoe had this vent system in the, in the cover, or if we had two lights in the back so the support boat could know how close they were, like he would take our ideas and make them even better. That's incredible. How yeah. do you find these people? That's the weird thing. Like I, I'm still, it's still like embarrassing to ask for help, right? Like it's just hard to ask for help. And yet it was so crucial and I would always feel guilty, like, I'm somehow manipulating these people into helping me, and I feel bad about it. But it's like, no, like, you, you have to accept that they're excited about the adventure, too, and they're having fun, and you're not coercing or manipulating anybody. They're volunteering of their own free will, and it's making their lives better. So don't feel bad about that. And this guy happens to really enjoy, you know, modifying canoes, and it was a fun project for him. He was recently retired Lutheran pastor with some time on his hands. So how do you find these people? I had put the ask out on, on like these paddling Facebook groups and stuff online. And that's how I got various teammates. That's how I got various support crew members. Um, Scott actually did the 150 that race that I organized this year. So he's a paddler as well. So Okay, so you understood. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to have to get back on Facebook. Granted, I have been so blessed with so many people wanting to help plan for this trip. So I'm feeling really fortunate. And then hearing your stories about all of the amazing people that were just called to help you get down the river and yeah. support you. That's really inspirational and beautiful yeah. that humans can just come together yeah. like that imagine what we can do or look at what yeah. we can do when we all come together yeah. exactly it's incredible absolutely incredible so through 2300 plus miles or more your 10,000 mile paddler what have you learned about the world through paddling hmm. about the world uh, lots of things, but the first thing that comes to mind about the world, the number one thing I would say is that, I mean, rivers are an amazing resource hidden in plain sight. No better example than the Mississippi right here in the Twin Cities, which Amen. you well know. You well know. I mean, I mean, when I'm on Pool 1 in South Minneapolis, between, which is right by where I live, 
between Minneapolis and St. Paul. When you're on the river, you, you might as well be in the middle of the boundary waters. It's peaceful, it's quiet, it's beautiful. There's animals, the, you can feel the sun, the wind, the clouds. And depending on where you are, maybe you can see a skyscraper or a bridge, but mostly you're seeing trees, waters, and sky right in the city. And you've got moving water, which is a magic in its own right. So it's an incredibly high quality experience. And as much as I love the Boundary Waters, I can't drive five hours to the Boundary Waters every weekend, but the Mississippi is right here. And there's a river near just about everybody, not too far away. And yeah, it takes a little bit of work to figure out shuttling or paddling upstream, which is not easy, but you know you can do it. And it's, it's such a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Paddling against the current is actually one of my favorite things. Right, to and do. it's great training. I almost do you feel like you're getting anywhere. I, well, you probably do. Get your arms. <laughs> so I mean, you just focus on a focal point, and you just keep going. Mm. And then all of a sudden, that focal point is closer to you. And you're like, yeah, I'm so strong. This is amazing. I'm doing it, and that sort of keeps you going. Right, and the first time Up you do the it, river. you're like, this is who would ever do this? Right, like why? And a lot of people can't imagine paddling upstream like it's just too much work but when you start to bring at least even just a little bit of an athletic mindset to paddling then it becomes possible and as you do it you get stronger and get more used to it and then you start being able to read the water and almost always there are eddies and there are places on the inside of the bends where you can work your way up the river where you're not facing the full brunt of the current so for example, if a, if, a, if a river is curving, you might be on the left side sneaking up an eddy and the main, the main current is not where you are and you're, you're sneaking up. And then it will make sense to cross to the other eddy on the other side of the river and, and work your way upstream. So yeah, it's pretty fun. I'd actually learned that from you um, when you took me river paddling. I had the honor of getting a random text message one winter day hey, do you want to go paddling? And I was like, what? I've always wanted to go winter paddling, but it's hard to convince people and to find people that have the skill level to do so. And I felt so honored that you trusted my ability on the river to like take me out in the winter. That's awesome. Like that was like that's such a badge of honor. Well, you know, again, that's the motivation of having the big goal of setting the record. Like it's going to be hard for me to find motivation to go winter paddling on the Mississippi. And then the other thing that I always think about is I have made this mistake many times where I don't fully consider the safety aspect. And thank God my neighbor, Mark Wager came with us a couple times and he was very safety conscious. And I learned from him like, well, yeah, probably would be good to have some ice picks around my neck. So if I end up in the water, and there's ice along the shore, I can pull myself out. He had those PVC mm. ice picks that oh, were, yeah. yeah, absolutely. He yeah. was incredible. Yeah, he was incredible. And like, people would say, you can't paddle in this freezing cold water. You have to wear a wetsuit or a dry suit. Like, you're just stupid. And it's like, well, it's all about what you're comfortable with. And if I wear a wetsuit or dry suit with as hard as I'm paddling, I'll be way too hot. I just can't do it. So I have a life jacket on. I have people I'm paddling with, thanks to Devin and Mark. I have ice picks. I can, if I can be in the water for five or ten minutes, and I, I'll get myself out. I'm pretty sure. But yeah, it's a little bit risky. But I'm willing. I'm willing to accept a little bit of risk. I think. I think what I don't like is when after the fact you realize, oh, that was riskier than I realized. 
I'm, I'm okay with saying, you know what, that was a little bit risky, but I understood what I was getting into and mm -hmm. I chose that decision and I mitigated the risk as much as possible. But there's times when I've looked back and I was like, that was way more dangerous than I realized and I'm a little bit embarrassed in retrospect, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I understand that fully. Yeah. But then you make it and it maybe you'd think that it shapes your next decision, but it doesn't because... Because you made it. You made it. I well, know. And now you know you can do it. Right? And now you know you can do it. Right. But but it but it's not that you're not going to do it again. But if hopefully someone enlightens you and you can figure out how to do it safer. Okay. You know. For sure. Yeah. Those ice picks were were money. Yeah. And then we did. We talked about gear, and you were completely correct. Because whenever I wear my one mils, not saying that it's inappropriate to wear one mils like wetsuit pants that I have, but. It, they get super hot and then yeah. you just can't even function because you're overheating and you don't want to do it. So right. it really is understanding your body, understanding your intention, and then understanding your gear. Right. And having a safety plan so that you know, what, here's my plan if right. I somehow end up in the water. Because right. you always have to assume that's a possibility. Absolutely. Oh, it's always a possibility. So the real danger is just falling into the water? The cold water. The cold the water. Because water. then your body goes into shock. Yeah. Yeah, and I met a guy, uh, Frank Burris, you know, he wrote an article in the Star Tribune a couple years ago because he took his canoe out on a nice spring day in Pool 1 in the Mississippi, his new solo canoe, just a few years ago, and he ended up in the water. And I don't know exactly what the conditions were like that day, but, you know, in the spring, it could be 75 degrees. It could be absolutely gorgeous out, and you don't think about the fact that the water Water's is so like cold. 38 degrees yeah. or 40 degrees. You just don't even think about it. You know, or you, you step in the water and it's cold, but you're only in it for a second. Well, now if you're in the middle of the river and you end up in the river and he was trying to swim to shore, he was wearing his life jacket or he, he would have died without his life jacket, but he was swimming to shore and he got so cold and he might've had some cold shock, which is a thing that can happen. He was starting to give up and two guys in a red canoe that he never saw out of nowhere came and rescued him. Really? Yeah. And I've been in that situation where in retrospect, one of the training trips we were on like three years ago in like November or something down in Missouri, you know, we were paddling overnight in the huge Mississippi and the water was really, really cold and there was barges and we didn't even have a marine radio at the time to communicate with the barges. Just, just naivete and sort of, you know, ambition blind, blinding us. And in retrospect, it's like that was, I wouldn't, I would not do that again. That was mm -hmm. stupid. We got away with it, but it was dumb. <laughs> And then you learn lessons like that. I'll never do that again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so overnight paddling. You, you, you experienced it. I should have listened to you when you said practice mm. overnight paddling. Well, see, what's sure. crazy about you is you're doing it by yourself. I mean, that is hardcore. Like, that's hardcore. You know, the guy, the oldest guy that just set the record for oldest guy to paddle the Dale. whole river, Dale. Graybeard Sanders. Graybeard Sanders. I mean, the, the more you can get people to come out and paddle with you right. is going to be awesome. And you will be able to do that. And, and you probably don't want them with you all the time. But here and there is a little boost, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to sell little pockets of time. Do you want to do 100 miles with me? Yeah. Can you do 100? Can day. you do 25 right. miles or a day with me or yeah. a part of a day? Like that's I would love to ha just have people 
with me for different sections of yeah. the river for my yeah. sanity. And it, it's also great to be a part of something it's big awesome. and great. And you will get people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You will definitely get people yeah. to come on. Panel. I've definitely gotten people that are interested. And there are two women in Arkansas that have been training all summer to get ready to do it next year, which I'm totally humbled by that. Like, you're going to train to hop on the river with me for my endeavor? Like, that's... Hmm heart warming and awesome. and awesome right just like your safety crew and everybody that came to support you just showed up to support you it's it's amazing how many people come out to support your crazy yeah. crazy ideas yeah. yeah but but paddling at night uh i mean paddling on a river it takes some skill even during the day and you 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 wouldn't want to start out by paddling at night you know it takes it's it's next level yeah especially when there's no water well i mean you paddled the race in terrible conditions. You know, <laughs> half the people that started the race didn't finish. So you have plenty of good company. Yeah. And the majority of people in the world didn't even start the race. So That's also true. That's <laughs> very true. Thank you for it. I mean, that race was, it was incredible that the river could go from record highs to record lows. Right. In weeks. Right. It, it's significantly less fun paddling at night if you're going to hit rocks. Yes, like that's and that just was, not even. It's not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not even interested in that. Yeah. Right. Like it's challenging enough if you're not going to hit rocks. If right. the water's high enough, but when the water's low and you're hitting rocks, that's just not fun. Literally spinning you around as you hit this rock because you finally get your momentum going, and then all of a sudden you're just oof, really and just like spun around, and it was it was great. I also learned about my winged paddle more with paddling mm. at light at mm. night through shallow conditions that when there's not enough water that carbon fiber winged paddle is trash Mm -hmm. and so that's like a whole other because i can't ferry i can't do anything right with that power paddle i needed to have i mean i did have my other paddle but i don't think i realized in that moment that i should have Switch paddles in the dark with no water and everything else going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But, but now I but, know. But when it's not low water, yeah. and the moon comes out and the stars come out, and the and it's just it's a lot of people love the paddle oh, at yeah. night because it's magical yeah. and it's so. There's a baseline level of fear, but it makes you feel so alive. You know, I mean, you're out on moving water in the dark, right. and it's just amazing. What does that sound like? Depends on where you are. I mean, sometimes the the noise of the frogs and the bugs is pretty loud from the forest Mm -hmm. on the shore. But then the moving water, you know, that's how you can kind of hear like, oh, there might be a rock there or a buoy or you can hear the water moving. Yeah. But a lot of times it's just peaceful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the, the, what's cool too is if you just took your boat out and you launched it 11 p.m. at night in the darkness that's that's hard but if you've been paddling while it's light and the gradual transition and your eyes you transition with you there's not that abrupt oh my gosh this is scary you're just like i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine whoa i'm i've been paddling in the dark for an hour and i didn't even really realize it your eyes do adjust in like in that sense and then you can see like the gradation of the land and everything happening um, and the red lights also help too to not ruin or create night blindness. Exactly. So that yeah. was great as well. Yeah, getting headlamps that have a red yeah. light, light setting is a is yeah. really good because they they don't you can you, it doesn't wreck your night vision. Yeah. A full moon would have been nice, but that just wasn't in the cards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Right. Are you ready for this question? I'm, I'm ready. What did you learn about yourself? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I am just starting to realize what I learned about myself. I don't know if I could have really told you uh, months ago. And, you know, of course, our society ridicules us for having any genuine emotions sometimes, right? But the true answer is I've learned, you know, my own voice. I've gotten more of my own voice, um, which is amazing. Like, I'm, like you asked if I was working on a book, and I have started to write a book because I've found a genuine, genuine, my own genuine voice. And sometimes I think about, you know, like if people ask, like, what advice do you have for people or, or how do you inspire people? And I, I have my ready answer. It's like, you can't try to inspire people, but if you are able to speak in your genuine voice, that's what's inspiring. That's what's inspiring, you know? So I think that's what people respond to. It's not that everybody's going to want to go and paddle on the river or paddle the Mississippi, but they're going to be like, well, I want to find what, what makes my soul alive, yes. what fills me with joy, you know, because this did fill me with joy. Yes. And when, if you pursue something, I mean, it's not easy to, you know, you're, to, to make a decision to go towards joy, but that's what this journey was for me. Like, this was like, oh, this is fun. This, is, this fills my heart with joy, you know. It's a very good thing to do. I believe that it fills your heart with joy. Yeah. So Absolutely. how do you make that? And I want to say it's a difficult decision. Like joy seems like it's a very hard decision for us to make as human beings because the expectations just load us down. Like the things that aren't joyful, like work. I was well, going to say, I think <laughs> joyful is expensive. Yeah, I mean, exactly. but how do you choose to make this a priority versus... Well, it's, and it's not just the expectations. It's also... You, you do have to have a baseline level of privilege and yes, resource. Yes, you are correct. You know yes, what I mean? Like, yes. you just do. Like, if you just do. Like, this never would have happened for me 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. I didn't, I wasn't making enough money. I right. didn't have enough stability in my life. Right. You know? But I got the idea for this two months before I was getting married. That's when I saw the guys doing the world record. And at that time, I met my wife in nursing school. We both became nurses. So suddenly we're two incomes, no kids. We bought a house and got married in the backyard. So, and this was in my 40s. So most of my life I had been single, on my own, not making very much money. And suddenly I have stability, I have a house, I have a career, I have money. And, I, and we don't have kids. Like, like that's huge. Like, kids are a killer, financially. Yep. <laughs> and well, time, and time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And having kids is an epic adventure and it's an amazing, wonderful, Absolutely. beautiful thing. But I, but I have no illusions that part of the reason I could do this is because I don't have kids. Like, that's just true, you know. Um, well, now I lost my thought. What was, the, what was the question we were talking about? Like prioritizing. We said joy. joy is expensive. Yeah. Right. So, but you're right. It is also about expectations. Um, how do you prioritize joy? I, you know, the, the one thing I know is that my friend Todd, my best friend, in 2003, he proposed when I was 29 or 28, and he was, he's a year younger than me. He proposed, he read this book that was about this adventure paddling from the Twin Cities to Hudson Bay where the polar bears live. And he said, we should do this trip. And I was like, 
you are insane. Like, I can't take three and a half months out of my life and, and I'm not worthy and I'm not capable. Like, there's just no way. We had done a 10-day trip in the Boundary Waters and it was so fun and so awesome. And it was, that was about as big as my mind could go. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a challenge to imagine that I could take 10 days yeah. and go to the Boundary Waters and have fun and, and have joy for 10 days. But I thought about it and I was like, you know what, you only live once and I am independently poor. And I was like, (laughs) sure, man, like, let's do it. And he's like, well, hold on, I gotta ask my wife and make sure she's okay with it. I didn't, you know, I wasn't partnered at the time. But anyway, we ended up doing this trip and I I sort of borrowed from his confidence. Like, I never would have come up with that on my own, you know, but then he quit that trip one third of the way into it because his wrists were hurting after paddling up the Minnesota River and then it was me mm-hmm. and I, I got a guy to join us from the scout camp we worked at who was 10 years younger but it was me like before it was the two of us and now I was the leader and I think I just gained a lot of confidence and having successfully completed that 2,000 mile journey which wasn't a speed journey but it was an epic voyage mm-hmm. I knew okay I, I can do that you know so then when my life 15 years later was at a place where I've got a career, I've got a wife, I'm happy, I've got a house, but I've got a little hole here where I could fit something in. And this woman I was talking to once, she's like, you know, you should really do something for yourself. You know, because you're a nurse and you give there and you give, and I'm like, geez, that's, that's a nice idea. And then this hit me like a bolt of lightning when I saw it. Like, like I want to do this. And I knew I could build up just, I could take, save up just enough PTO from my job that I could take off a, a whole month from my hospital job as a nurse. Like, people try to do the whole Mississippi and they take their sweet time. I'm like, well, that sounds great. I would love to do that. Good for you. That's the way to go. But I, I don't have that much time in my life right now. And I think it'd be fun to try to set the speed record. And so let's try that. You know? I hear you on the 100-day, 160-day river trips, and I'm like, I don't, I don't have time for that. I'm pushing, I'm pushing it going for 50 days, but I'm trying right. to be realistic and kind to my body because right. um, I'm also a massage therapist, so I use that to <laughs> pay my bills. So being mindful of that. Um, how are some of the ways that you covered covered the bill for the Well you you're are you fundraising? You're doing I'm, fundraising. I'm trying to fundraise. I get a lot of attention um, and support and I love that, but the fundraising seems to be a well, little Well we should talk. Slow. We should talk. I would appreciate because that. you know we I'm I'm like a reluctant fundraiser at best, but I bet for other people you're really good. Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But we managed to fundraise our yeah. full budget to cover you know our biggest costs were gas for the support boats and gas for the support vehicles that put thousands of miles on these boats and vehicles. That was a huge expense to gas. Right. Plus, I wanted to pay for the support people's food. Food, right. And so, in some cases, lodging, mm-hmm. especially at the end, we're celebrating New Orleans. So, But we raised the full budget both times. And that was mostly just by asking, asking. and selling T-shirts. And we got a couple of big donors and a couple of sponsors. Um, but yeah, there's there's ways to do it. Teaching Kickstarter ways. or <laughs> GoFundMe. I mean, there's so many different online Avenues, things you can yeah. do. Yeah, it's interesting. Working on it. Yeah. Working on it with all the other things that are going on. Right. Absolutely. This has been incredible. I've learned so much about you. 
feel Thank like you. we should get drinks more often. Yes. Yes, we should. <laughs> <laughs> Just talk. Your storytelling abilities are amazing. Oh, geez. Thank I you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate all that you do. I mean, when I found the Mississippi River Races, it was like an answer to a dream that I'd been asking for. Like, why aren't there more races in Minnesota on the Mississippi River? Like, I just want to race. I want to see what it's like to be in a competition without having to travel to a different state or put more stress on resources to do so. So I really appreciate that you came up with these races and you are hosting them. And they are, from my point of view, like they're flawless. Hmm. Like organizationally, communication-wise, like chef's kiss, so impressed that two men can be so (laughs) 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 thorough and organized. What are these races called? So it's the Mississippi River Paddle Weekend. Okay. And they're comprised of six different tours and races, and they're for everybody. So there's a five-mile distance for families. There's a seven-and-a-half-mile guided tour for beginners. And then there's, you can do a 10-mile, a 25-mile, a 48-mile. Those are all, you have five, seven, and nine hours to complete any of those. And they all finish at the Coon Rapids Dam. Or if you want to go really crazy, you can do the 150 mile, which you have 50 hours, starts in Brainerd and ends at Coon Rapids. And all of this, all the information is at twopaddles.org. And it'll be our third year this coming June. And basically it's uh, June 9th to the 11th. And basically everything happens on the 11th. And you get to the finish line at Coon Rapids Dam and we have music and food. And it's, it's really fun, yeah. And, and so we, we're trying to get people, the main goal is to get people to appreciate the incredible resource that is the Mississippi River in Minnesota, because it is radically underappreciated. And so we, that's why we try to have something for everybody from beginner to expert. Yeah, it's the stereotype of that river is, you know, like it's gross, it's polluted. Why would you go in that? It smells. It, I mean, there's just this idea of it from afar. It's pretty, but you don't want to get close to it. And, you know, a little bit that's justified because you, people do still die in the river literally every year, usually because there's some alcohol involved yes. or they're not wearing their life jacket or they're just going above their abilities. But the, the two paddles weekend, we have safety protocols in place. You know, if you're a beginner, you can do the guided tour, you know, so we, and you're going to wear your life jacket like everybody's required to. So we have things set up to try to make it pretty safe. Um, yeah. So it's a good way for families and people, just regular people, to have a chance to get out on the river, experience it, feel safe. Guides would be there, and this happens in June. In June, yeah, okay. June, June 11th, basically. Okay. Um, yeah, we have the Five Mile Family Challenge. was our, It was our first year this past June, and it was cute. We had we had second graders and fifth graders, and I think we had a kindergartner do it. Everybody has to have a parent in the boat, obviously, but. They just paddle five miles and then they get a trophy and a medal and they get some food. And it's I fun. love that. And then that helps foster the relationship that yeah. you have with water with your father who took you out when you were a young, a young lad. Yes. And my, um, my parents and my aunt and my brother all volunteer to help and, and, and my wife's uncle and a whole bunch of family members and friends. And so it's really, 
it's the whole inspiration for it is that race I was talking about in Missouri, which is very much a community feel. Like all these small towns come out and all these, there's people that organize their whole workout routine for the whole year just so they can come and do this one race. And there's people in Walmart kayaks and aluminum canoes. And then there's people in $5,000, $6,000 racing boats and everything in between. And it was like, we were trying to build that. Like, are you a stand up paddleboarder? Are you a kayaker? Are you in a surf ski? Are you in a canoe? It doesn't matter. As long as it's a self-propelled boat, you can come on the Mississippi River to our event and, and paddle it. And if you want to try to win the whole thing or win your division, great. But just like a marathon, that's only like 10% of the field that's actually trying to win the marathon. Mm-hmm. Most people just set their own time goal yeah. or they're just trying to finish. Yeah. yeah, I was assuming that the waters were still high and lush and everything, and I was like, I'm going to be in my bed by Saturday night, <laughs> and I was. <laughs> but see, I just finished, you know. <laughs> it's such a good experience. To, even if you don't finish, right. you learn so much. And, I mean, you we went 60, 70 miles. 75. 75 miles. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. huge. And you paddled at night, and you... Yeah. Think about what an incredible experience that was. No, for the, sure. You know, yeah. And it was extreme conditions. I mean... It was like the lowest on that. It's, it's like basically almost never been that low on that date. Of so, course not. That's yeah. like my life. I'm like the one percent. Like everything except for like fiscally. <laughs> They're like, oh, your roof. We're only gonna do this. Only one percent of the people have this underwriting. Right. That's yeah, you. Yeah. I'm like, thanks. But there's also all those special qualities that you have. Absolutely. Devin, I think that you only my, have. You're the one percent. Absolutely. I'm the one percent. Really all are. these weird skills. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. That was amazing. Do you have anything else to add? If you want to know more about the world record attempt, go to MississippiSpeedRecord.com, and you can actually see the documentary film trailer there, which is really cool. because we Which had I just watched. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was good. Cool. So there's a link there, and there's a link to our Facebook page and a bunch of media articles. and So that's that. And then TwoPaddles.org is for the, for, the, for the paddle weekend. That's where to get all the information about that. So. Look up the Paddle Weekend. It's for everybody. It's fun. It's amazing. It's organized beautifully. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> no, seriously. That. that means a lot to me. Um, yeah, it's just an amazing experience, and I think it leveled up my paddling, my love for paddling and abilities, just knowing that those competitions exist, and you do meet other people from all over the world. Really, I mean, I met a Canadian that kept me sane for a couple of hours yeah and so, how cool is that yeah that was amazing yeah. yeah yeah we had people come from 15 different states and i think three or four provinces yeah yeah in its second year yeah i know i know that we don't know the sky's the limit on how big this thing could right. get you know i'm excited yeah. for how big it can be maybe i can plan my source to see around the paddle weekend so that, that i just like cool. dip through do you know there was a guy that did the 150 this year that was i paddled doing... past him yeah he was like yeah. i'm doing source to see i'm like that's great i gotta go <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i was like good choice in color of boats because we both had yellow boats but yes. yeah mm-hmm. that's awesome yeah we definitely met each other it was beautiful that's cool. So, Devin, would you mind reminding listeners what your attempt, what you're about to attempt, and then tell us how we can help you? Thank you. I am Devin Brown, and I am looking to attempt, no, I am going to be the first African-American woman on record to source to see the Mississippi River. And the reason I say 
on record is because I'd like to acknowledge my ancestors and enslaved people that had moved up and down the river against their will and searching for freedom. Um, how you can help me is with, I'm just going to say it, with money. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so that I can pay for gas for my support crew, so that I can feed my support crew, and so that I can make a dream that's been a decade in the making come true. And it really, you know, if if you get 50 people donating $20 or $50, it adds up. So Absolutely. Yeah. Every little bit helps. And how do they find you to give to be able to make a donation? Where do they go? Thank you. So on Instagram, my handle is aphrodisiac, spelled A-F-R-O-D-I-S-K-A-Y-A-K, afro kayak like African-American in this kayak. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find all of the links to everything about this in my link tree through the profile on Instagram. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. This has been an incredible evening. What a way to spend my Friday. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both. Thank you, Jody, for Yeah, absolutely. Making this happen. It's been amazing. This was fun. Yeah. And yeah, you ended it perfect. This is fun. (laughs) We do this for fun. (laughs) Nice. I love it. We Do This For Fun is brought to you by Boreal, a catalyst for wellness transformation inspired by the beauty of the North. Boreal helps people find and align with nature to power individual health and wellness. Wellness coaching, plant-based and outdoor cooking classes, camping wellness retreats, and more. Learn more at Boreal.com. That's B-O-R-E-A-L-L-E.com. It would mean so much to us if you would follow and subscribe to the We Do This For Fun show page on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's easy. Just hit the plus sign or click on follow. many of you read reviews for outdoor gear to help make purchases for your outdoor adventures. The more reviews, the more likely you are to purchase or take a brand seriously. It's like that with podcasts too. We'd love for you to give us a five-star review. And after you've done that, just share a quick comment about what you like about We Do This For Fun. Please share our episodes. Help us make an impact because everyone deserves to have fun out there.